for your amazing grace, Lord, all that you've done for us, Lord, that you've conquered the grave, that you've become present among us, Lord, and just everything about you, Lord, we just give you the glory. Uh, just come and dwell among us this morning. Uh, be with us. Stir our hearts. Uh, just allow us to, uh, to come before you, God, and just to, uh, to, just to bask in your presence. Uh, 
and just we just thank you for the opportunity we have to just come and freely worship you uh, come and just um, quiet our hearts from the busyness of the of the weekend of the holiday coming up lord and just that uh, god just be with us move us this morning is what i pray in whatever capacity you see fit lord just move us this morning we thank you in your name Sing this old hymn with us. Christ shall come 
I love that song. That's that's my favorite song. I think in for all of eternity. It's something I want sung at my funeral. Um, so if that happens while you're all still alive, that's what we'll all be singing together. And I'll be singing it with you, by the way, just from a much better perspective. Um, anyway, so that's not really the note I wanted to start on necessarily. <laughs> hey, I might die sometime, but you might too. That's why we're here. Because we need to know the truth, right? We need to know what's, what, uh, what God has to say and to be ready for that. Today, um, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. While we're doing that, um, I'll have the ushers come forward and they'll hand out the, um, the, uh, the, the guest connection cards. And you guys can uh, sign, sign your names on those and fill those out, pass those down the rows. Uh, this section over here, when you're done, you just pass it to the middle. As you're doing that, if you're a new visitor with us, there's a spot for you to fill out in that. And, uh, and then some prayer requests at the bottom. We would love to pray for you. So I hope you guys fill those out and do that. Um, just a couple of announcements as well before we get started. Uh, the 3D Living event, the next one that's happening is this Thursday at 7 p.m. It is uh, How to Find and Keep Financial Peace. And it's going to be led by Eric Pigman, who is a certified um, financial uh, counselor, financial coach with Ramsey Solutions. That's Dave Ramsey, okay? So uh, I encourage you, if you've never gone through FPU before or you, or you really don't have 
uh, a good handle on your finances, this will be a great encouragement for you. You can sign up at the guest connections table back there to do that. There's also uh, a way to do that on our website. In the announcements page, you can find a link to, to sign up for that form. So child care, I think, will be available for that. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. And then one more announcement. Uh, VBS is, is right around the corner. July 16th, that's two weeks away, I believe, and uh, through the 20th. And so if you have not signed your kids up yet, I'd encourage you to do so. Um, you'll find some information about that probably in your program. And then online, you'll see something in, in your email this week just as a reminder to sign up for that. If you're a volunteer and you've already been volunteering or you'd like to volunteer, sign up to be on the, the VBS staff. I uh, want to encourage you to do that. There's <clears throat> some information back at VBS Central, which is at the Guest Connections table back there, um, that you can grab some information there. But also, if you are a, a volunteer or want to be a volunteer on the staff, uh, Becky has asked that you would make sure that you sign up online because the online form will give you a chance to order a T-shirt, and the deadline to do that is 5 p.m. tonight. Okay? Uh, the kids will get a free T-shirt, but if you're on staff there, uh, or you want to be on staff, you have an opportunity to, to purchase a t-shirt as well. And so um, if you have more questions about that, you can talk to me or one of the leaders afterwards here, and um, we'll get that straightened out. So Luke chapter 18. Okay? Luke chapter 18 will be in verses 9 through 14 this morning. Luke was a Greek doctor. He was a very educated man. He was one of Paul's companions on his missionary journeys. He's the only known Gentile author in the New Testament. And obviously, uh, the gospel that carries his name, he wrote that, and he also wrote the book of Acts, which we'll study later this year together, kind of a two volumes in one thing uh, that he wrote. And it, Luke's gospel has been called the gospel for the sinner and for the outcast. Uh, it shows Jesus' compassion to, to become a man in order to save mankind, in order to, to, um, to come and be like us and to take our punishment uh, and, and to, to offer that salvation freely to those who would believe. It's the only gospel that records uh, the accounts of the Good Samaritan, of the prodigal son, of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, of Jesus' conversation with the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which is the one that we will be looking at this morning. Uh, and so you kind of get this heart of, of who Luke is writing to and who he's writing for, the, the people that everyone else overlooks. And this is really good news uh, for all of us in this room this morning because um, we fall into these categories. And, and, and so uh, there's hope for us. God's going to challenge us this morning through his word. We're going to talk about humility and, uh, but, but in the midst of that, to find mercy. And so this account takes place uh, on Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, he's, where he's going to go be crucified. He's going to go die on the cross there. And this comes after, right after the parable of the persistent widow uh, that talks about the necessity to continue to pray and not give up. And then in this parable, Jesus is going to use the prayers of two men to reveal the condition of their hearts. See, our prayers reveal a lot about what we think about God, what we think about others, and what we think about ourselves. And if you're like me, and you've ever uh, made a wrong assumption about one or all three of those categories, then you're going to want to pay attention 
to what Luke has to say here this morning. So I want to read our passage and then pray, and then we will get into our message together. Luke chapter 18, starting verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning, that your spirit would convict us and encourage us and comfort us and lead us into a clearer picture of Jesus. And we'd be drawn to your mercy. Plead for it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine um, was attending a church uh, not anywhere around here in a different part of the state. And he went to a prayer meeting at this church and, and, uh, and he walked in and he heard the pastor and um, the, the church leaders praying for a family. Only the, the prayer that they were praying wasn't the, the prayer that he would have expected a, a group of church leaders to pray for this family. Uh, and so he, he sat down, he started listening to the prayer and the prayer, he heard this come out of the pastor's mouth. said, God, and, and, and by the way, we'll, we'll call this family the Joneses, okay? That's not their real name, but... Uh, he said, God, please help the Joneses stop smelling so bad. Please, please take away the stench of the Joneses so that while I'm up there preaching, I can concentrate on what I have to say and not be bothered by them. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the face, right? That's what she said. And so he, he kind of listened a little bit further, and, and the, other, the other, the elders and the, the church leaders, they joined in, and they, they, they went on to pray that, that God would, would just kind of move the Joneses back in the rows, because they like to sit up in the front row. Either move them back in the, in, in the rows or, or to get them to just stop smelling altogether. This was a real prayer. And so he, he, he got up, and he walked out of the prayer meeting, and, and, and um, afterwards the pastor came up to him, and he said, you know, why'd you leave? And, and my friend was just like, man, that, that hurts my heart. That hurts my heart to hear you pray those words uh, for that family. I know this family, and I love this family. I don't understand uh, why you would pray something like that. It's so disrespectful. And the pastor replied to him, no, it's disrespectful for them to smell that way. Now, I, I had the same reaction that you are having right now. When he told me this story, I was mad. These people were supposed to be shepherds of this family, and they shamed them. I was angry. I wanted justice to be done for this family. I wanted these guys to, I wanted their church to shut down. I, I was so mad. 
And I thought that my anger was justified. I thought that it was a righteous anger. But the longer I went, the more that anger turned into conviction in my own heart. See, I, I felt compassion for that family, and I, and I wanted to see them uh, vindicated from that. And yet, I realized that I was doing the exact same thing to the pastor and to the church leaders that they were doing to that family. You see, they were disgusted by the family, and I was disgusted by them. They were wanting God to punish the family or to correct the family, and I wanted God to punish them. They wanted to exalt themselves over that family, and I wanted to exalt myself over these leaders. And perhaps you are guilty of the same thing this morning. Now, I didn't share this story to trap you and to cause you uh, to get angry and, and, and to sin against uh, these people and God that way, because here's the thing. People don't cause us to sin. They only reveal, they only expose the sin that's already in our hearts. The reality is that you and I are more like those self-righteous church leaders than we would care to admit. You see, we often view ourselves more highly than we ought at the expense of God and other people. We tend to trust in our own righteousness, and as a result, we have little compassion for others and little need for God's mercy in our own lives. And the truth that we will see in this passage this morning is that God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. And, and humbles the exalted. And so we have to be humble. In order to do that, we need to have an honest view of ourselves. We need to have a compassionate view of others, and we need to have an exalted view of God. Humility requires an honest view of ourselves, and that means that we need to see how prone we are to self-deception. I want to ask you a question. Who is the worst sinner you know? Is it you? Is it you? Did you just kind of like look this way? And so the Pharisee didn't think that way about himself. Look at verse 11. So the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, standing to pray was a normal practice at that time, but the reason uh, it seems like that, that Jesus was, was making note of that as he's, as he's talking in this parable, in the context of the parable and the people that he's sharing this with who were trusting in themselves for their own righteousness, uh, it seems like that he was making note that the Pharisee was standing not just as the normal practice to pray, but standing up front for all to see. It's something that Jesus himself had condemned in the uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners for all to see. So this is kind of the principle here that Jesus is, is referring to. And so uh, the Pharisee is already deceived about his posture of prayer. He's coming in chest out, all righteous in his own eyes. But let's, let's look about the prayer itself. He starts off with five 
I'm not. Okay? He says, first of all, I'm not like other people. Immediately, he separates himself from everyone else, and then he lists specific types of people that he's not like. He says, I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. In other words, I'm without fault. I obey all the rules. I'm not unclean. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. In other words, I am not the worst of sinners. So if you remember from Pastor Dave's message a couple weeks ago, he talked about the tax collector and Zacchaeus and how tax collectors had their own category. It's like sinners and tax collectors, the worst of the worst, right? You see, self-deception works in subtleties, okay? Think about a magician for a second. Kids, can you guys all see this? What is this? Anybody know? Quarter, okay. Good. At least one person will see this, okay? But they work in self-deception, or they work in subtleties, right? And and self-deception works in subtleties. You think about a magician, and they use something called sleight of hand. So when they go to to grab something, or when when they want to get you to think that something's happening that's really not, right? Yeah, let's just pray. Close on. <laughs> they, they get you to think that something is happening that's really not, but, but it's an illusion, right? They want you to believe in a false reality. It's all fake. It's, it's foolery. Self-deception happens when we give more credibility to our own view of who we are than, when, than we do God's view of us. Self-deception happens when we give more credibility to our own view of who we are than we do to God's view of us. And I I believe God wants to help us see ourselves clearly this morning. And so here's a question for you to consider. What are your I'm nots? What are the things that you tell yourself to subtly convince yourself that you're better than you really are? I'm not an angry person. I'm not rude to my parents. I'm not a tattletale. I'm not a gossip. I'm not an addict. I'm not a racist. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I'm not either one of those. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a divorced. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a promise breaker. I'm not the Pharisee. If your focus in life is on the I'm nots, you're using spiritual sleight of hand. And you will deceive yourself into believing that you are better than you really are. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind and test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Here's the reality for the Pharisee. He may not be greedy with money, but he's greedy for attention. He may be ceremonially clean on the outside, but on the inside, he's self-righteous, which is just another type of unrighteousness. He may be physically, or he may not be physically adulterous, but he loves himself more than he loves God and other people, which makes him spiritually unfaithful. He is right about one thing, though. He's not like the tax collector here. 
See, the Pharisee stood at the front for all to see. He separated himself from other people because of pride. And the tax collector separated himself as well, but not because of pride. It was because of his deep sense of unworthiness. He stood far off. A chapter earlier, it gives an account of a group of lepers. When Jesus comes through and passes by, they stand far off, it says. And they're crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us. They felt unworthy to approach him. This is the sense of uncleanliness and unworthiness that the tax collector felt in his approach to God at the temple here. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, which was another uh, common practice in prayer at that time. Instead, he kept beating his chest in anguish and in sorrow as if he was attempting to break through to the very core of his wickedness, which is his own heart. He wasn't self-deceived. The, the tax collector was self-aware. The Pharisee had no sense of personal sin, no conviction of any wrong in his life, no sense of being unworthy to approach God. He was completely reliant upon himself. And if humility requires an honest view of ourselves, then we also need to see how prone we are to self-reliance. Remember Jesus' audience here. Look at verse 9. It says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So he's telling this, this parable to a group of people who are self-reliant in their righteousness. Self-reliance focuses on our abilities and our works. We already talked about the Pharisees' I'm nots. So let, let's look at his I do's. Okay, verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. Now, Old Testament law only required uh, fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it also only required uh, tithing or giving 10% of, uh, of the crops that uh, the people had, not everything. And so in both cases, he's doing way more than the law commands. This man never asks God for anything in his prayer. Instead, he comes and he tells God about how uh, good he is, all about his own acts of supposed righteousness. So if self-deception works in subtleties, then self-reliance works in exaggeration. See, pride always piles things on, and that's what the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law were all guilty of. They were notorious for this. Read Matthew chapter 23 this week. Jesus rebukes them, and the, the, the whole chapter is, is that way for this exact thing. Anytime we come to God embellishing our own works instead of pleading for him to work in us, then we have become self-reliant. So what are the works that you tend to exaggerate or embellish? What are your I do's? I put my check in the offering basket every week. Even though that your motivation isn't to give sacrificially or out of a cheerful heart, but just so other people see that you're doing it. I've not only kept up with the gospel reading plan, I've actually gotten ahead in it. Even though you can't remember anything you've read. I don't eat a meal unless I've prayed for it. Even though you mindlessly recite the same prayer over and over and over. 
I read instead of watching TV, even though you spend hours on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Pick your app. I only listen to Christian radio stations, even though you'll go watch that raunchy new comedy at the theater. I only use the ESV or the NASB because they're the closest to the original language, even though they're still not the original language. And there are plenty of other faithful and good Bible translations and paraphrases that will help you along with those in your study. I'm in five different community groups. Even though you haven't gone past a surface-level relationship with anyone in those groups. I volunteer in almost every ministry. Even though you're neglecting spiritual gifts that God has given you for the purpose of serving the church body in specific ways, in specific areas to a greater degree. Now, I've been guilty of a lot of these things. And some of these hit home for you more than others, but, but here's the thing that we need to understand this morning. No matter how we look on the outside, it's the attitude of our hearts that God is concerned with, and he is never pleased with a prideful heart. He's never pleased with a prideful heart. The other day, I pulled an apple out of the fridge and, and uh, looked like a really good apple. I like my apples crisp. Okay? And so I, I got it out, I started to wash it off, and I found a little soft spot in it, so I grabbed a knife and I cut that soft spot out before I took a bite out of the apple, which I'm glad I did. Because when I cut that soft spot out, I found out that inside the apple, there, it was really dark and nasty and grainy. So I started to cut that away a little bit more, and I found even more dark and grainy and nastiness behind it. So I, I cut around the whole apple, all the way to the core. Everything inside that apple was unedible and it ended up in the garbage how deep does your self-reliance go if god were to cut out the fruitless things in your life the, the spoiled things because of pride what would you have left you see the problem with self-deception and self-reliance is that they both blind us to our own sin so we need the clarity of God's word. We need the conviction of God's spirit and we need the commitment of God's people to help us all working together in our lives to expose the sin in our hearts and to give us an honest view of ourselves and to drive us to the mercy of God. This week, I would encourage you and challenge you, uh, this is what I need to do, to read Psalm 19 and Psalm 51 this week. And then turn those passages into prayers and ask the Holy Spirit to show you the hidden faults in your life and the willful sins that you have committed. And then confess those. And then share with a trusted friend what the Spirit reveals to you about uh, or through God's Word. And then ask that friend if he or she sees anything else, any other areas of pride in your life. This will be a humbling experience, but listen, that's the point. If humility requires an honest view of ourselves, then it also requires a compassionate view of others. What do we need to do to view others compassionately? The first thing we need to do is to stop making assumptions. Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee 
and the other a tax collector. Now, immediately after hearing those words come out of Jesus' mouth, the people listening to the parable would have made some assumptions. They would have heard the words Pharisee, uh, tax collector, and temple, and they would have automatically assumed that the Pharisee had every right to be there, and the tax collector did not. They would have automatically assumed that God was going to bless the Pharisee and condemn the tax collector. They would have pictured the two of them in their mind, and they would have given a lot more favor to the Pharisee than the tax collector in his looks. They would have assumed that the Pharisee was the righteous one and the tax collector was not. They would have elevated the Pharisee and looked down on the tax collector in their minds as soon as Jesus spoke that first sentence of this parable. So what assumptions have you made about others before? Who are you prone to criticize when you look at them? How often do you look down on other people? Turn to the person on your left and say this to them. Are you ready? I'm better than you. Now turn to the person. Some of you were a little aggressive with that one. Now, now turn to the person on your right and say this. I hate you. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, right? Some of you like just broke out in a cold sweat right there. Okay, nervous laughter. Siblings, you're probably really loving this exercise. But listen to me, I hope that was uncomfortable. I, I want you to feel the, the sting of the words when they come out of your mouth when you say those things. Now, now, just so we're clear, kids, is it ever okay to say to somebody, I'm better than you, yes or no? No. Is it ever okay to say to somebody else, I hate you, yes or no? No. Okay? These are terrible words to say to someone. And I hope that none of you meant those when you said them this morning. But listen to me. When you begin to criticize someone else in your mind, you have said those words in your heart. And Jesus compares hating your brother in your heart to murder. It is a serious offense to look down on someone else. It's unloving to assume that you know someone that, uh, that, that you know that someone is unlike you or uh, it's un, un, unloving to assume that you know what someone is like when you don't. It's unloving to elevate yourself over someone else. It's unloving to assume that you're not like other people. See, the Pharisee centered his prayer around the assumption that he wasn't like other people, and in doing so, he condemned them while he praised himself. And we do the same thing. We set a standard of righteousness for ourselves that we think that we have already attained, and so every time someone else fails that standard, we kind of kick them down the spiritual ladder and leave them beneath us. If we're going to have a compassionate view on others, we need to stop making assumptions and start making connections. Okay, turn to the person on your left again and tell them this, I'm no different than you. Now turn to the person on your right and say this, I need the same thing as you.
There was a lot softer noise around the crowd than that one. These are good truths to remember, right? No matter what we look like, no matter what we've done, the one thing that connects us all is our need for God's grace and mercy. I'm no better than you. I'm no different than you. I need the same thing that you need. Parents, if your son or daughter comes to you and they, they, they lie and you find out, has your response ever um, sounded like this? Seriously? Are you kidding me? Didn't we just have this conversation yesterday? You know why I could say that one from memory? I didn't have to read that on my page. That's my response a lot to my kids. But, but what do you think that communicates about God's grace and God's mercy? What if instead you were able to calmly and lovingly sit down next to them and go, you know what? What you did was wrong. And here's your punishment. But guess what? I've been guilty of that before too. I know what it's like to be tempted to hide the truth because I don't want to get caught, but I also know what it's like to have that come out and to see the pain and the hurt that I've caused the people that I love because of that. But you know what else? I'm so thankful that God doesn't lie to us. When he says that if we come to him and we ask him for forgiveness, he'll give it to us. And he'll give us the grace to continue on. I'm so thankful for that. Aren't you thankful for that? See, when you connect your own need for God's mercy to another person's need for God's mercy, then you're able to connect them to the one who is merciful. How are you like the friend who betrays you? or the coworker who takes credit for the project you worked on together, or the lady who steals your space in the parking lot, or the guy who's texting while he drives past you in the, on the highway, or, or the wanted felon that you see on the news, or that obnoxiously rude parent at your kid's baseball game, or the gossip at the coffee shop, or the person who rants on Facebook, or the shady politician, or the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterer, the tax collector, and the Pharisee. How are you like these people? When you understand that you have the same need as the person next to you, compassion will grow in your heart for that person. And when your heart breaks over your own sin, it will break for theirs too. Now to be clear, I'm not talking about excusing sin or enabling sin in someone else's life. If you look at the sin of someone else and you think, well, I've done that before, so uh, it's okay. Who am I to judge? That is the wrong connection to make. See, sin has consequences, and it has to have consequences. Read Genesis chapter 3. It has to have consequences in order for us to know that what we did is wrong. But there's a difference between acting justly against sin and withholding forgiveness from another person. At the end of Matthew 23, even after Jesus spends that entire chapter rebuking the Pharisees and the religious leaders for their self-righteousness, he laments over them at the end of that chapter. He says, how I long to gather you together under my wing the way a mother hen gathers her chicks. But then he says, but you were not willing. You see, it's the unwillingness of the Pharisees. It's the unwillingness of the religious leaders. It's the unwillingness of the self-righteous 
to seek forgiveness. It's their unwillingness to seek that forgiveness that kept them from being forgiven, not God's unwillingness to forgive them. Compassion for others will always lead to a longing for God's mercy to intervene in their lives. When you look at someone else's sin, does it break your heart? Because it reminds you of your own. Do you long for them to know the mercy and the grace of God and to be free from that? When you find yourself starting to criticize someone, ask yourself, how am I like this person? How am I guilty of the same thing? How has God shown me mercy in that area? And how does God want to use me to help that person seek his mercy in their own life? So humility requires a, an honest view of ourselves and a compassionate view of others, and those ultimately come from having an exalted view of God. And an exalted view of God is one that magnifies his majesty. The Pharisee's prayer is completely about himself. The fact that he addresses God at the beginning of his prayer seems more like it's out of obligation than actual gratitude. He says, God, I thank you, but the rest of his prayer makes it sound more like he's really saying, God, you should thank me. He has no awe of God's majesty, no fear of God's power, no shame at his own sin before a holy God. But then we get to the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. It says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This tax collector had a clear view of who God is. He's not strutting his way up to the front, chest out, telling God to listen up. He knows he's approaching a holy God who is above all things, and, a, and God's holiness is overwhelming to this tax collector. God Almighty, Sovereign Lord, Most High God, the I Am, Eternal One, the One True God. These are all just a handful of names that the Bible uses to describe God in Scripture Psalm 113, 4 and 5. The Lord is exalted above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one enthroned on high? Psalm 96, 4 through 9. For the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness and let the whole earth tremble before him. The Bible leaves no room for a casual view of God. He must be seen as supreme, as most high, as absolutely perfect, as incorruptible and totally pure, completely sovereign, full of justice, and exalted above all things, including and especially you and me. So what are the words you use to describe God? When was the last time you were overcome by the holiness of God? What, when was the last time you ascribed to him the glory of his name? When was the last time the righteousness of God caused you to tremble at your own unrighteousness? 
See, it's righteousness that's in view here in this parable. The Pharisee saw himself as righteous, and so he approached, approached God in pride as an equal or maybe even a lesser than. And the tax collector, however, knew that he had no righteousness of his own, and he knew that God alone is righteous. His awareness of God's holiness exposed the depths of his unholiness, and he recognized what he deserved, and that was nothing but God's wrath because of his sin. The tax collector was deeply convicted by his own sin before an almighty God. So why would he even dare approach God in the first place? If he deserves God's wrath, why would he expect to receive anything else? Notice his prayer. He doesn't come up to, uh, to God with a list of, of personal accolades like the Pharisee does. He knows that his greatest need is to be saved from God's wrath. And he knows that only God can save him from it. And so the tax collector musters up all the courage that he can and asks for one thing, God's mercy. And this is pivotal because an exalted view of God not only magnifies his majesty, but also magnifies his mercy. Remember that Jesus is the one telling this parable. God in the flesh is sharing this story with a group of self-righteous people who look down on others. God in the flesh is approaching these people with a story about how to approach him. God in the flesh, who's on his way to Jerusalem to show the fullest definition of God's mercy, is revealing his heart to them here through this prayer of a tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That phrase, have mercy, in the original language means to have compassion, to show concern, and to turn away wrath. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. The most high God, in his compassion and his concern for us, he took the wrath that we deserved because of our sin, and he turned it away from us, and he redirected it onto his own son. Sin has consequences. And the consequence for our sin ultimately is death. Because of his holiness, God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot excuse it or enable it. But listen, his love for us is as strong as his wrath against sin. And in that love, he longs to show us mercy. And the only thing that satisfies both his wrath against our sin and enables him to show mercy to the ones he loves is the perfect sacrifice of his one and only son on the cross. Jesus bore the full wrath of God the Father because of our sin, and he died the death that we should have died. He was condemned in our place. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. God redirected our punishment of death onto his son so that we could be made alive with Christ. Jesus died and he was buried, but three days later he defeated death and he rose from the grave. And now anyone, 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 anyone 
Pharisee, tax collector, and everything in between who comes to him humbly and seeks his mercy and forgiveness will be granted it freely because the price has been paid by his own son. When you put your trust in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice for your sin, you will go from death to life because Jesus went from death to life for you. Kids, turn to your parents and say, this is good news. Oh, you can say it loud. It's good news. Parents, help them out. Turn to your kids and say, this is good news. It's God's majesty that exposes our need for his mercy. It's God's holiness that exposes our need for his help. It's God's righteousness that exposes our need for his rescue. And we find the most glorious display of God's majesty and the most beautiful display of his mercy in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you only magnify God's majesty, you'll run away from him in fear every time you sin. If you only magnify God's mercy, you won't treat your sins seriously enough to seek forgiveness. And so to keep God's majesty and his mercy in balance, you need to stay focused and fixed on Christ. Study him, pursue him, know him, proclaim him, thank him, worship him. The more you do that, the more you will grieve your own sin and the more you will run to God for mercy and forgiveness. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but the one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. There's a difference between approaching God in pride and approaching God in bold humility. If we try to grace God's throne with our presence, we'll walk away empty-handed. But if we approach the throne of grace in humility and we make the bold ask for God's mercy, listen, that's exactly what we'll get. At the end of the parable, Jesus says this about the tax collector in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's not the ending that those people were expecting to hear. They thought the Pharisee would have been justified because they thought that they could justify themselves. But it's God who justifies. And he justifies the one who humbly comes to him looking for mercy. If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, God will lift you up. Because Jesus came in the flesh as a man and humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross, we now have that invitation to humble ourselves and to come to the Almighty God to find mercy and grace and forgiveness. Why wouldn't you want to come? A couple weeks ago, I was out running errands and I pulled into this parking lot and there was about a half a dozen parking spaces in the front row and, and they had signs on them. At first glance, I thought you know, they were you know, handicapped signs. But, but I looked a little closer and they said, um, reserved for fuel-efficient vehicles only. And I, I'd never seen a sign like that. Like, when I read that, I, I kind of pulled through and I was like, 
what, what does that even mean? Like, are they rewarding these people for, like, uh, it, for, to me, it might as well have said, look, if you aren't uh, with, the, with the environmental program, then you deserve to walk from the back of the parking lot. Okay, I, I really kind of wanted to pull in my rusty Ford F-150 and just kind of park it across a couple of those <laughs> parking spaces and just leave it running while I ran in. Um, humility is a hard thing to hold on to, isn't it? We have daily, sometimes hourly and minutely opportunities to humble ourselves. God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted, and so we have to be humble. And humility requires that we have an honest view of ourselves, that we have a compassionate view of others, and that we have an exalted view of God. The two most important commands in all of Scripture cannot be carried out in a prideful heart. To love God and to love others, you have to humble yourself. Don't look down on others. Instead, look up to God, the Holy One, the One who is merciful, who sent His own Son down for your sake, and run to Him and plead for mercy, and you will be sure to find it in the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. We're going to close our time together this morning by responding to God through communion and through singing. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul gives a warning about the way that we approach God in observing the Lord's Supper. You can approach God in humility, being mindful of Jesus' sacrifice, or you can, uh, as you eat the bread and drink the juice, and you can be encouraged by his grace, or you can approach God in an unworthy manner, eat the bread, drink the juice, without seriously meditating on the sacrifice, and be guilty of sinning against him. Paul says to examine yourself. In other words, have a, uh, an honest view of yourself. There's two ways that you can take communion in an unworthy manner. The first is if you haven't put your faith in Christ. If you haven't trusted in his sacrifice for your sins, then you will have no personal connection to the significance of the bread and juice. You have not been united in Christ yet. And because we love you, we don't want you to sin against God that way, and so we'll ask that you don't participate in communion this morning. If, however you are ready to humble yourself before God and confess your need for his mercy and put your trust in Christ. And I want to encourage you to grab a Bible and open it up to Psalm 51 and let that guide you in a time of prayer and confession during our time of communion this morning. If you do that, then please share that good news with someone, to, with an elder, with a ministry leader, because we want to celebrate with you and pray for you and help you get started in this new life with Christ. The other way to take communion in an unworthy manner is if you're a believer, but you're living in willful, unconfessed sin. To eat the bread and to drink the juice while you're willfully living in sin is to cheapen and to mock the sacrifice Jesus made for you, for the, for the, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, because we love you, and we don't want you to sin against God that way, we'll ask you not to take communion this morning. If, however, you're ready to humble yourself before God and confess that sin and turn from it, you're welcome to join us in taking communion after you've done so and been reconciled to God. Parents, since this is a family service, you may have children in here that fall into one of these two categories. That's for you to discern and to lead them in the uh, appropriate response. So ushers, will have you come forward and, and distribute the trays. The bread and the cup are together in two cups. One's underneath the other, so make sure you get both.
spend some time reflecting, approaching God in humility, and then we'll eat the bread and drink the juice together. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Father, you are holy, good, and merciful. We thank you that you have, in love, sent your Son for us to redirect our punishment, to put it on him so that you could look on us. And be satisfied because we now have the righteousness of Christ. Nothing of our own. Lord, let us humbly come daily to you seeking mercy with the promise that we will receive it. And let us walk humbly with a clear view of who we are. Loving you and loving others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
the ushers can come forward, we're going to also continue our worship by taking our tithes and offerings. Lord, we just pray for these gifts, Lord, that you would just multiply them and abound them for the work that you have here in our community, Lord, through our church. In your name.
shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless we stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong. Save his love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of Thanks for joining us this morning. Go in peace. Um, be on a mission for the Lord, for the things that you've learned, the things that you've done today. And we just thank you for joining us this morning. Just in his righteousness alone, for us who stand.